You're tuned into City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. If renovation is the plastic surgery of architecture, then adaptive reuse is what we might call architecture's facial reconstruction. Karin Liljegren is the founder and principal of Omgivning, a firm that specializes in this unique form of architectural practice, taking old buildings and turning them into something completely new. Join Karin as she walks me through the mind of an adaptive reuse architect and explains how adaptive reuse is the key to breathing life into a city's forgotten history. Season two of City Speak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects is a West Adams-based, award-winning design firm committed to bringing design alive for their clients while improving the built environment in the process. You can explore their work at batoniarchitects.com. City Speak sponsors also include COVID management consultants. COVID management will help you implement the safest and most cost-effective protocols for reopening your business or protecting your home based on CDC and EPA-approved recommendations. Visit covidmanagementconsultants.com for more information. Karin Liljegren, welcome to City Speak. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's start off with just sort of a basic definition for all of our listeners. What is adaptive reuse? Adaptive reuse is the reuse of an existing building. But let's say um, you have an office and you're renovating it to be an office. It's renovation. It's not an adaptive reuse. But if you're going to change the use, that's when it's technically adaptive reuse. And how did you get into this space? It seems pretty particular. What is distinct about it as compared to, say, a typical architecture firm? Um, How did you get into this? And what are some of the specific unique qualities of adaptive reuse practice? So first of all, I never had any interest in historic buildings at all when I was younger or even in college or any of my studies. But in 99, there was a new ordinance in the city of LA and it was called the Adaptive Reuse Ordinance. It was created primarily to incentivize redevelopment of the historic core of downtown, which is where we are right now, where most of these buildings were just totally empty. So that ordinance really spurred a huge redevelopment and revitalization of um, the historic core as well as all of downtown. So I was lucky enough, I was at Killifer Flamang Architects at the time, and we got the first project under this ordinance. And I was thrown onto that, and I just got sucked right into downtown and these old buildings, and these old buildings are so cool. There's, there's so much potential for vision and kind of working within constraints So I think that's the thing that I love about adaptive reuse is that there's something existing that you have to work with. So it makes it a lot harder sometimes. And there's so many rules and regulations that are current day that don't really work with old buildings. So that makes it even more complicated. They're super, super challenging. Um, Most people say they're more difficult than new construction because there's all these existing things. And then also they're a part of our fabric of who we are as a city. Right. And so I just feel like it's super important to, I don't want to say necessarily maintain it, but to keep the old buildings, but to modify them so we're still moving forward you yeah. know, as a city. Yeah. yeah. And in a previous interview, I think you likened what you do to puzzle solving in yeah. that you have kind of existing parameters that you have to work with. And one thing when I was reading that, that I was reminded of completely separate form, but um, it reminded me a lot of what music arrangers talk about when you have an existing song or something and you're trying to either orchestrate it for um, a different band or a type of orchestra or a different instrumentation. 
And what's challenging about it is that on the one hand, you want to apply an artistic vision to this existing thing, but you have to balance that with retaining the integrity and the recognizability of that original melody or in your case, building. How do you balance that? How do you balance some of the goals and desires you have for a specific building with keeping its original bones recognizable? I think it's about a different process. Say if you have a lot of freedom and it's a blank site or it's, you know, in nature somewhere, there's a lot more freedom with being able to bring an artistic concept or a theory or the idea or whatever is the generator. Sometimes it has no relation whatsoever to what it, you know, it's like it can be something abstract. But when you're dealing with existing buildings, especially in urban fabric, I feel like that's almost a very inauthentic way to design, especially with existing buildings. So I see it more as the, the like putting a puzzle together. It's all these pieces of things that come together and create its own design. Yeah. Um, so it also comes from a very low ego kind of perspective because it's not me pounding my chest going, Hey, we're going to do this big building. And everyone's <laughs> gonna... it's very much of creating things that are going to, in the end result, feel like they were just meant to be there. Yeah. Um, so with the puzzle part, the process is more, okay, there's the existing building, what historic stuff is in the building or no historic stuff or what's, you know, all the code stuff, how are we, you know, like where are the exits and where are the fire escapes and where's the windows where they're not the windows. And so there's the kind of pragmatic problem solving, but um, the more design aspect comes from pieces or remnants that are left in the building that inspire something new. Obviously other pieces come from the client's vision or what we're working together with the client to create is the vision. Obviously the new use, because there's a lot of you know practical and uh, inspiring things that come out of that. So, uh, but then it's just not just that building, it's, it's connection to the street, it's relationship to the pedestrian experience, uh, to the views from other buildings, especially we do so many rooftop gardens and additions and stuff, and then the block, and then, you know, a, a bigger scale too. So to me, it's all of those things kind of put together um, in a blender, and then the cake kind of comes out. Right. So which I feel really helps the design be more authentic or like what it wants to be. And you said earlier that it's sort of a low ego enterprise in that you have to balance, you know, what you have with what you want it to be. But that isn't to take away that a lot of adaptive reuse projects, and particularly yours, are quite bold at times and that you have a real striking vision. There are really famous international examples. I think of like the Tate Modern was an old power plant type building. And you have some of your own. I'm curious if you want to talk about either your recent or your favorite projects. And I think for our listeners, it would be cool if you could talk about maybe a really large example, like very striking, large macro example. But also, I understand you do some kind of micro, smaller scale that is really cool as well, if you want to talk about any of those. Yeah, the scale, um, we, we've done a project as small as like 900 square feet wow. up to 2 million square feet. I think the they're all super fun, <laughs> but um, the ones that are really big and complicated, they're the most challenging. So I think they're, they're kind of the most fun, at least for me. I think everyone's different in the office. Some people like smaller scale. So I don't know. I think, for example, Broadway Trade 
is a good example because it's a huge, massive, it's 1.1 million square feet um, that straddles Broadway, Hill, 8th, and it's two-thirds of a city block. And it doesn't have any light courts or anything, so it's a big, it was originally the Hamburgers Department Store, then May Company. And so when you're doing an adaptive reuse of a project that large and that blocky, you know, with the new uses, there's different things that you need to bring into that. So part of it is obviously carving into it because just by law, we have to keep the facades kind of pristine. So how do you carve into it? And when you start to carve into some of these big buildings, there's an ability to have a connection within the building vertically. So when you think about, for example, new modern skyscrapers, they tend to be skinny and tall. Right? They don't have light courts because they're skinny and tall. But there's also no vertical connection within the building. And I think some of the opportunities with these big blocky buildings, whether it's a big industrial building or like Broadway Trade, is the ability to connect within. So whether it's um, at the bottom of a light court, maybe it opens up to a food hall or some sort of public space, retailish space You know that you're engaging, you look up. You see, you know, the core going through. Maybe you see there's offices up there or whatever. And then on the roof, there's some way to engage in kind of looking down. You know, so if you have this kind of public-ish rooftop with gardens and bars and stuff like that, that to be able to experience that of looking down and connecting through. And then if even people can go, oh, hey, that's the food hall I was just in. Or it really helps create a, an identity within the building as well as a, a connection socially. Even if you're not physically, you're, you're making a connection that there, you're within something that there is like a whole microcosm of things happening within that building. And not only within a specific building, but one thing that your firm really stresses and focuses on is, as you mentioned earlier, ensuring that the internal life of a building connects with pedestrian and outside experience. Why is that so important to you? And how do you approach a a given project in looking at what is the actual urban experience outside the building? Well, I think there's a couple things. One is We live in Southern California where you naturally want to be outside or connected to the outside as opposed to other climates where you kind of want to be inside just to get weather away from weather elements. And the second thing is urban experiences don't typically, they're typically not successful if they're internal. If you ever have any of those food courts in a basement, you know, from the seventies, they're, they're just awful spaces to be in and you feel totally isolated from the urban experience. Or those second-level bridges that some cities have. I mean, that's just just so dumb. takes away the whole point of being in an urban experience. I've noticed downtown, every single time somebody opens a restaurant and they have tinted glass or they don't have openable, sometimes you can't have openable doors or windows, but if they have tinted glass, it's like the kiss of death because people want to engage. So even if you're walking down the street, if you have clear glass, even if you can't open you're seeing through it and you're, oh, like, oh, oh, that looks cool. Let's go check that out. Or you just feel like you're, there's a connection just by walking by. So with a lot of these buildings, we try to create kind of these public-private paseos or interior streets to draw people in because, A, I think it helps the success of the building um, and all the uses in there, especially since retail is kind of falling down a little yeah. bit and it's more about experience and 
you know, engaging with urbanity, I think, is, is only going to be, it's like, let's just go downtown and walk around and see what we explore or find. So these kind of interior public-private streets and paseos, I think, are a great way to kind of expand on our urban connection. This episode of City Speak is sponsored by COVID Management Consultants. Get instant clarity on how to cost-effectively and safely sanitize your business and home according to CDC and EPA-approved recommendations. Your business associates and loved ones will be glad you did. Visit covidmanagementconsultants.com. I think adaptive reuse um, assumes to a certain extent that you have buildings in a given city that are old enough or outdated enough that such that they can be reused. And in L.A., that's certainly um, applicable given that a lot of buildings downtown are pretty historic. Do you see this happening, zooming out for a second outside of Southern California, do you see this as a larger movement across cities? Is this something happening specific to L.A.? Or yeah, do you think no, I think is- L.A. was actually one of the last cities. Even a lot of smaller second-tier cities did major downtown revitalization before L.A., and it was all um, really kind of based around adaptive reuse. Because I think there was also a movement of people getting excited about old buildings. Yeah. Whereas for a long time during the modernist movement and everything that people really wanted to be in clean, modern buildings. And now they're like, hey, there's this great character in these old buildings. Shifting gears for a moment, I something that occurred to me, and I'd love to just to hear your thoughts. Are there any specific types of buildings that you believe either because they're sacrosanct or even their previous use might be fraught simply shouldn't be subjected to adaptive reuse. And what I mean by that is I think most people would say, for example, even if it could be privately acquired, let's say hypothetically, the Parthenon in Athens should not be a hotel or even more on the extreme end sites where atrocities have taken place should probably shouldn't be converted and their historic use should be retained. I'm curious, are there any kind of opportunities that you would consider off limits um, for adaptive reuse for any of these reasons? And how do you decide what can be an adaptive reuse project versus a project that really should be left to historic preservation? Ooh, that's a tough one. I think that there's different levels of adaptive reuse. Like you can do adaptive reuse where you're not modified. It can still be considered preservation. It's harder to do, but I think it depends on what you're changing the use to. So many of the, the kind of more iconic buildings that we do that are adaptive reuse, are they still have to follow Secretary of Interior standards. They're getting national historic tax credits, so they have a higher level of restrictions. What, what are those, by the way, just for background? So historic tax credits are you get, you get a, you know, the developer or the owner gets credits for renovating a historic building. So it doesn't have to be adaptive, you know, it could be a restoration, it could be a renovation, it could be adaptive reuse, but you have to follow certain requirements. Like you can't put a big addition on the roof. You could put maybe a little tiny one. You know, uh, you, you have to go back to the old storefronts uh, in style. You can't, you know, there's just a lot a lot of things you can't do. Um, and it depends. It's totally case by case basis on what what's there. So I'm not sure if there's any specific type or any specific building I can even identify off the top of my head that this, you know, off limits in terms of adaptive reuse, because I think there's different levels of adaptive reuse. Sure, sure. And in in your career, having in looking at your portfolio of works, I think the really inspiring thing about adaptive reuse 
is its capacity to tie the present to the past in a really creative and eye-opening way. Have you had people reflect on that aspect to you in saying, when I walked through you know, Broadway Trade Center, I sort of felt the history alive? I think they always feel a connection to the past. Yeah. I don't think it's super specific sometimes. Sometimes it's just a cool old space or the volume of a space or they didn't even necessarily know what the past was. There's just a certain character of spaces that are older than of new construction. I apologize, a very trivial and silly example. This past Halloween in Philadelphia, I was in Philadelphia this past Halloween, and the Eastern State Penitentiary, which is this, one of the oldest penitentiaries and disused now in Philadelphia, they, they put out this huge haunted house. It's oh, like yeah, famous. It's huge. And obviously sort of trivial and maybe a little bit, I'm not sure it honors the history so much, but I certainly did feel a kind of, tremendous connection to mm-hmm. the past mm-hmm. when I was going through it. And that was only, you know, the, that's a transient experience. It's t- entirely a pop-up. Right. So I can imagine, I'm, and the reason I asked that question is I can imagine that in your cases, there's such an interesting link that you forge with the past um, in your projects. Yeah. And I think in that case that you bring up, the building hasn't been modified. Right. So that's, you, you have even a more intense kind of experience when I walk the buildings before we do the renovation. You know, there's a lot of times really you can just, sometimes I can even feel like there's spirits there, like, you know, who knows, but you just feel an energy. But I think once they're kind of, you know, you, you strip the mechanical, electrical plumbing, you put in new structural stuff, all, you know, new windows or whatever, new spaces, and there's historic fabric that's left on the, or spaces that are left it's a different kind of connection to the past. It's been modified in some right. way. Yeah. Right before we started the this conversation, you had started telling me a little bit about how your firm is kind of unique in terms of how it's organized and the your the, how you've approached starting Omgivning. And maybe you could talk a little bit about that and particularly what does Omgivning mean as well? I know that's an interesting part of your, your his, firm's history. I was actually lucky enough that when... KFA that I worked for before um, I started on Gibning was also a very low ego collaborative place. They were great mentors for, I think, my trajectory of where I've taken on Gibning. But the architecture industry as a whole, maybe a little bit less now, it's just so, you know, chest pounding, you know, identity with one designer. Yeah. Uh, it's that name, you know, the star architect, yeah. the, you know, and it's usually this, the, you know, the two old guys who run the firm have the knowledge, the power, and the money. And I'm just so anti that. I just, and I think it's really outdated. And I think any firms that are still, you know, organized around that as a premise are, are going to be dinosaurs pretty soon. So I'm giving, it's not my last name, which is as bad as I'm giving. That's <laughs> difficult. But I'm giving is a Swedish word that means the way space feels around you. Um, there isn't an English word for that. And when I was trying to come up with what to name the company, I, I couldn't find a word. But it was like how the space feels. So 
and I'm like, oh, I'll never call it Liljegren Architects because that would just be really difficult. And then a friend of mine said, oh, there's this Swedish word, and I'm Swedish ancestry. So he's like, oh, this is a Swedish word, om evening, and it, and it means just what you're trying to say. I'm like, well, that's even worse than my last name. <laughs> but <clears throat> I've learned that it's also a weird word that kind of looks cool graphically, actually. But people don't know how to say it or spell it, but they recognize it. They're like, oh, you know, it's that firm. So uh, I think what's different about us is it really – started at its core of being about us. I mean, yes, I'm the leader or whatever, and I'm still 100% owner, but that's going to be changing kind of quickly. You know, so it's it's not about ego and it's about we and it's 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 about um people who are working here to empower them so that we all have the knowledge, the power and the money. So it's not just say me making money or the clients making money, like we're finding other ways, starting to get into development, starting to get into product and to empower people to find really align and find their skills and passions. And if we all live our lives where our skills and, and passions or interests are maximize everyone's successful. That person is, who they're working with is, all that kind of thing. So and architecture isn't a one-person occupation anymore. It is so a huge team of people, right. you know, and we're in a profession where we are the experts at being generalists. It's like we know a million things, but we're not really experts at anything. And I think that's our power is that we're awesome masters of problem-solving and of being visionary, and we have to just acknowledge that our profession is about kind of orchestrating and curating all those people that make that happen. Because if we can understand all these different things on a macro to micro scale or, you know, across the board, we can really make something much more impressive happen than if someone thinks they can do it all by themselves. I know that in, I guess it was the early 2000s, you helped to either revise or to actually draft the adaptive use ordinance, if I read that correctly? So uh, so in working on the first draft of the ordinance, which is a planning document, right. um, through that it then became building code. And so I was a part of helping it become a building code. I see. And in work, I guess what I found is that in working with these buildings, the traditional codes and things, you know, they need to be tweaked or they're not applicable or because people that are in offices writing these things don't understand a lot of the nuances of what's actually occurring. Our, our involvement or a lot of my involvement on bringing back Broadway was very specific to that because then we even analyzed the actual buildings on Broadway, like literally every building. And what are the commonalities and why was Broadway taking so much longer to revitalize than, say, Spring and Maine? Because Spring and Maine had a lot of old banks in the on the bottom. Yeah. And then the upper floors were offices that were either U or E-shaped. So they have a lot of windows, a lot of light. So they're great to be converted to housing. But Broadway, they were department stores, so they're multi-floor, multi-floor department stores or storage up above with retail on the ground floor. So a lot of them don't have light and ventilation on the sides. So they're much harder to become housing. But also it's such an incredible historic street and just the, all this, the signage that's still relatively intact and a lot of incredible grand spaces because of the department stores. So getting involved in policy for bringing back Broadway was super helpful because we could, we came up with a, a building code that was related to the historic code and some, you know kind of took off of the adaptive reuse 
that's specific for that street. Came up with a sign ordinance, which allowed incentivized development. So bringing back big signage on the roof or the sides, you know, they're kind of based on historic signs, but which, you know, ways to incentivize development because it's hard to do these buildings. So that, that kind of policy making is hard to do top down. It's much easier when you start with boots on the ground like we are and kind of go up. I guess just to close, and forgive me if this is an overly simplistic question, but is it possible that all the old buildings get adaptively reused and then the project's over? Is that has that is that even conceivable? No, because by the time you do that, there's going to be a whole other wave of whatever the next adaptive reuse that's so of interesting. those buildings I see. are. It's, I see. it's endless, right? And that's what's cool about reusing old buildings. And I don't even want to say just old, by the way. This is not just historic buildings because now we're getting into buildings from not just the 60s, but the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. We need to reuse them, not tear them down and build new ones, or at least some of them. <laughs> Karin Lilligren, thanks so much. Thank you so much. CitySpeak is sponsored by COVID Management Consultants. Get advice on how to cost-effectively and safely sanitize your business or home based strictly on CDC and EPA guidelines. Complete a contact form on covidmanagementconsultants.com for a live person response. This has been CitySpeak with Maximus Hudefarkas. Produced in partnership with Urbanized Media, with music and audio production by Greg Gordon-Smith, and musicology and verification of originality by Muse Inspection. 